one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello, welcome, and a very happy St. Patrick's Day from all of us here at Second Captain of the Irish Times. I could be churlish and have a massive go at our patron saint right now as the parade route seemed to be designed specifically to block my path into work. Mm. But I'd rather focus on his greater legacy. Very few snakes on the route, for a start. <laughs> and Excellent, yeah, that, that is true. Fully, This only happens on March 17th every year. Fully operational chipper vans at 9am. Nothing screams St. Patrick's Day quite like the smell of fried burgers mm. wafting through the streets around St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin what, or wherever you are. I'm sure it's the same everywhere in the country. What constituency of people are they aiming for particularly that at That early? I don't know. There, were, there weren't even many people on the streets at 9am. I, I mean, say. it makes sense to me at 6am and it makes sense to me at, you know, midday. <laughs> but at 9am... Do you remember that there was a place on Dame Street for a little while which uh, I think it was, it was modelled on... Uh, cafes, little canteen cafes that had been successful in Japan. Yeah, and you would go in, and it was like uh, it was almost like one of those places where, where they've got PO boxes or safety deposit boxes or something. Yeah, and what you had was all these fast food items in individual plastic drawers. <laughs> no, really? I don't remember. Yeah, it, and you so. go, you'd like um, this would t- be a late night spot, would it? it no, this oh, is the no. thing. It was like I remember meeting a friend of mine at quarter to nine in the morning. Yeah, standing on Dane Street outside this place. With a cheeseburger that he just bought, <laughs> that he literally gone in, taken it out of the plastic drawer where it had been presumably all night, yeah, and was standing there eating it at a quarter to nine in the morning. I mean, he was on his way to work. Oh my god! I know, I know. <laughs> That's pretty rough. I know. I thought, you know, um, so there's always someone out there looking for a, a burger at nine a.m. I was yeah. a little, I was a little bit impressed, but at the same time, deeply concerned. We're all still pretty high after Saturday. I've watched the last five minutes back a few times now, uh, I mm. must confess. The the first time I rewatched it was great because the nerves were gone. I knew the outcome. Yeah. And um, I was happy enough to, to just watch it and be relaxed. 
the second the time after that I watched it again, I felt a bit like Paul O'Connell. Why aren't we closing this thing out? Yeah. This would be a lot easier. This could have been this could have been a nice, comfortable yeah. fourteen point win if we kept playing rugby. And yeah. here we are having to bite our fingernails through the last two minutes. It takes you know, I, I don't think Paul O'Connell can be, you know, uh you know, a tutored to say that. You know, to kind of come across as Oh, you know the ultimate professional. Someone whispers in his ear at the end of a game. Oh, you know, you might, you might mention you know the fact we didn't close it out. <laughs> I mean, he did actually feel that, and I just think that takes unbelievable. I mean, I was listening to him saying that, and he said it in more than one interview. It should be yeah. said as well. This was a consistent theme of his. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about, O'Connell? This is amazing. You know, like who cares? Uh, and obviously now Monday morning. I, I can think about it and say, well, you know, there's probably a lot of things we could do wrong there. But it did literally take me the 36 hours. What to a day. Ken, you enjoyed the big game, I assume? I enjoyed the game, yeah. Um, although I didn't feel much tension about it. Really? No, I was pretty sure I was going to win, actually. Even when we were getting carved open in that flowing move towards the end? I knew I was going to win because of the second try that Ireland scored, in which France just completely disintegrated. And I thought, Look at this, they're not serious. I mean, when France were attacking, every yard that they gained was incredibly... I mean, they had to fight their way through this defence. And it was very, very difficult. Even though they they played reasonably well in the attacking sense, it was so difficult for them to make any headway. And when you compare that to the way that Ireland just walked through or waltzed through... That was the Trimble try, wasn't it? The second try, yeah, the the Trimble try. Um... Yeah, Conor Murray. Well, that's a team that's got through pretty easily for that one. That that is a team that is. Uh, Listen, what you're saying is Ireland are a top, top, top team, and France not for me. That's well, basically I, what you're saying here, is it? I, I just didn't see in that in that moment. I didn't really see a France team that that was prepared to you know die on the spot. They looked prevent. like they were prepared to do that towards the end. Maybe it just took a bit of a rocket of a couple of Irish tries. They seemed certainly motivated. And th- that was, I guess, one of the more gratifying aspects and people have been talking about it, that we did have to go to Paris. We did have to beat a French team, a fairly bedraggled French team, but one wh- whose personal pride had been stung so badly. This is reference in mm. the build to the game that they did actually perform. And it's their best we, performance by a mile. Yeah, in this series and we still managed to withstand that. So it was amazing. Well, so, hang on, they beat England, like... Yeah, they were very lucky that day. Yeah, well, they were. Yeah, they were lucky to be in England. Like they scored three tries, so you know they did plenty of things right. But what they, you know, they, they play and they played well that day. They played better against Ireland, but it just turned out that Ireland played better than England. Did. A perfect end to Brian Driscoll's Ireland career. Uh, almost surreal how perfect it was. But the more usual end to great players uh, involves. What Steve Nash is up. So this is what we're going to talk to the US Murph about today. The NBA player, 40 years of age now, I think he is. And he uh, signed a big money contract for the LA Lakers a couple of years ago. Now he's injured. He's being criticised. He's getting paid a hell of a lot of cash and people aren't too happy. Well, certainly Lakers fans aren't too happy about this. So this amazing career, he's had a superb career over 20-odd years, is just spinning downwards into a, a slide from which is probably not going to recover. He's the subject of a documentary series at the moment called The Finish Line on the Grantland website. We'll have a little uh, listen to a little clip just to give you a flavour of what this guy's all about. Every athlete, when they lose their skill... They lose a big part of themselves, a part that they built their life around that, you know, has been a huge part of their purpose, self-esteem, identity. So when the skill or ability goes, it's like there's been a death. 
So on the one hand, I'm lucky I, I've gotten the better part of 18 years of it. On the other hand, it'll never be the same again. Uh, suitably morose sounding um, Steve Nash there. He's kind of a downbeat character anyway in the way that he delivers in interviews and so on. But he's probably fairly it. upset as well about what Sherwood is doing to Spurs. Yeah, Steve Nash, big Spurs fan, yeah. yeah. Mm. He was a big soccer fan generally. He was a very good soccer player growing up in Canada. Yep. And uh, Keith Duggan was actually writing in the Irish Times a couple of weeks ago about Steve Nash, saying that uh, he was in a Johannesburg bar having a few pints during the South Africa World Cup. And he looked over and he's like, God, that guy looks a lot like Steve Nash. And uh, it turns out it was actually Steve Nash. Uh, yeah, so he he was actually doing, I think he was doing a, like a video blog for ESPN around that World Cup. Yeah, he's involved in ownership, isn't he, in the MLS? Anyway, we'll talk to US Murph about that a bit later on. But Eddie O'Sullivan is ready to talk to us. Dennis Hickey is in studio. Guys, thanks so much for uh, for being available and ready to talk on this Patrick's Day. The two of you were a couple of seats apart, I know, in Paris, both working for BBC Radio on Saturday. Dennis, it was unbelievably stressful to watch this match at home. How were the last few minutes in the stadium? Yeah, it was it was pretty tense and um, not unlike the New Zealand game in Dublin here in November. But uh, I think there was just maybe a, a, a you know kind of a sense that Ireland the, the occasion was with Ireland right up to that last point. I was pretty sure Ireland going to win. Really, you weren't yeah. too worried. Even well, I was worried, but I just thought that Ireland were going to be able to hold out because their defence was so good and the scramble defence is good up until the point where France created an overlap with, yeah. uh, luckily with the second row and a, and a back row and uh, the ball went forward. You know. Eddie, were you as comfortable as Dennis with a couple of minutes to go? <laughs> I wasn't. I, I, I knew, you know, it's, in my experience in all these games, you know, it's a one-score game. The team behind always get one crack at you to, 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 to win the game and then they, they take it or they don't. And um, It's funny, you know, when Ireland were trying to kill the clock and they were carrying through phases and then, they were France awarded a penalty inside their own half, and I said, "Oh God, here we go!" You know, here, here it is, and he missed touch, and yeah. I thought, "Oh God, maybe we're out of jail here." And then Rob kicked it long. It was a tough one for Rob because, you know, he, I suppose the smart thing was was put it down the field and get out of your own half. He could have kicked contestable, which was very successful all day. But the problem with contestable is, you know, you go up and it's a fifty-fifty ball, and and if you don't win it, you're still inside your own half. So. He kicked it long, but France came back, and then you know the next time we got the ball back was for the scrum after the forward pass. So, you know, you, you, I always you had that sense that a team always gets one crack at you when it's a one-score game, and, and that was it. And uh, yeah, we held out, but um, you know, even the drama of, it was one thing was a forward pass. We all drew a sorry, right? Then we got the scrum, and then we lost the scrum. Yeah, actually, that was which was like, geez, like I mean, we're really we're really giving them another shot here, and uh, luckily we choked them in the tackle, and that was it. But yeah. um it was uh, it was pretty tense stuff, I have to say. Like, the, and the atmosphere was fantastic because the game itself was such a fantastic spectacle, end to end. You know, teams were, were going at it hammer and tongs. That the, the tension kept building as as the game went on. You know, did you meet up with any of the players afterwards, Dennis? I'm just wondering what the mood was like. Because it, it was, I don't know, was it a more of a, a sense of relief than anything else? I don't think meeting up was the right word. I think maybe I ran into a few of them uh, um, at, uh, very briefly later on, and they were, you know, they were just. Euphoric in the sense that there's very little analysis done when you when you when uh, you know it's very you know, it's it's only you only have good feelings after a game like that. Mm. Um, so there are you know the, the the guys I happened to bump into were were um, were a mixed. I think they were experienced feelings of a mixture between elation, relief, um, um, and 
just happiness, but I think a big one was relief. Funny, Paul O'Connell, you say that there's no analysis done. Paul O'Connell immediately after the game, I don't know, you might have seen these interviews, but he <laughs> was pretty clear that we should have done a lot better in those last few minutes. We should have closed out. We stopped playing rugby. Well, that's a very, that's a very Paul O'Connell thing to do, actually, you yeah. know, and um, you know, it's, that's typical of his mindset. Uh, and his kind of exacting persona understanding. And I think most of the, you know, a lot of the guys, certainly senior guys, would 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 look at that last ten minutes, uh, as would Joe Schmidt, and say, you know, we we should have been better in that. Just could have made it minutes. a little bit easier on themselves. Yeah, exactly. Well, certainly because I'm sure that would have been something. For example, that they they clearly would have uh, taken, let's say, from the New Zealand game. You know, if we get into this position again with ten minutes ago or five minutes ago, we're in the lead. How do we shut the game out? And you know, if you went through a list of things not to do. That's probably exactly what they did in that last ten minutes. As Eddie said, you know, you know, the, the, that the, the missed, um, you know, the, the long kick, and then the, 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 the creating the overlap, and then the scrum, etc. So, you know, if they were if they were trying to improve on what happened in November, I, I think that was the only down point in the game. So maybe we, we didn't actually learn as much as we had hoped from New Zealand. We shouldn't be talking negatively at all here, Eddie. But it is interesting. Ron O'Gara said after the game on RTE that, listen, we. If we had lost that, if we had lost a similar in similar circumstances to New Zealand, that would have been two defeats like that in four months. Would have been unbelievably hard to take. So, how important do you think it was that actually, regardless of how panicked it seemed to be, we actually just got over the line there on Sunday on Saturday? Well, you know, I mean, it's, you know, when you win and you, you know, especially when a championship, you know, everything seems like the sun is shining in every direction. But yeah, there were you know there was times against France that you know had had we. You know, we could have let it slip through our fingers. You know, there's no question about that. I mean, you know, John Mark Desans missed penalty before that. You know, um, like he had a shot to put them in the lead with five minutes on the clock. And now we might have come back and we might have got a penalty and we might have got a drop goal or whatever. And you know, to be fair, if I was thinking as he was lining the kick up, if he gets this, I, you know, I think if we take France through phases, their discipline's not great, and we we will get a shot at him, but. But then you were rolling the dice, and it could, you know, had Desan made the kick, it would have, you know, you, that game could have slipped away. So it's it's at the same time, you know, you have to say that, like, at the end of the day, if you win, if you win those tight games, everyone wants to win a game with two scores to spare. You can breathe the last two minutes, but when you win those tight games, and the more of them you do win, the, the more you get out of them in terms of building that belief of character. That yeah, when we're in tight spots, we 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 don't give it up. So. That trades against the, the, the All Blacks game where we had All Blacks like on toast and, and we let them off the hook and even they admitted that. Um, but that trades against that now. But Rogers Wright had, you know, this one gone south as well. Then there's two of them back to back, two massive games back to back. And they can, you know, grate your psyche a small bit. There's no doubt about it. So to get that one over the line, you know, it was a bit ugly in the end. I don't think it matters because guys will believe that, look, we, when we're in a tight spot, we can get out of it. And that that belief is important, even if sometimes there's not a ton of logic to it, um, the fact that you can get it done, because sometimes it's scrambling your way out of a game is what's needed, and we scrambled well when we had to on Saturday. Yeah, we've probably had bad luck over the years in the Championship, and you guys have both been involved in second-place finishes, Dennis, so we'll take a scrambled finish, and we'll take England being a bit unlucky not to score a few more points maybe against Italy when it comes our way. Yeah, you do need luck to win the Championship. I think when you go through five games... Um, of that intensity in a very short period of time, um, to at least in one of those games, you're going to have to be relying on some modicum of luck to actually get you there, uh, and that could be where you know that could mean you don't get the injuries that you might have had in the previous season. Like look at the injuries Ireland had last year mm. when they went through 33 
34 players versus the amount of injuries they had to keep personnel this year, you know, with the exception of really Sean O'Brien losing him up front. They didn't really have any injuries, uh, or certainly to, to, to the backbone of the side. Um, and you, you need that sort of look. And then the individual bits of luck in a game um, that, you know, sometimes go for you and sometimes go against you. And, and they just... Um, they, you know, Ireland had a bit of luck in that in that regard. So were we a little bit lucky? Were, were, were ourselves no. in England essentially at a, at a very similar level, but we got a little bit lucky this year? Well, no, because, you know, having a bit of luck and being lucky, you know, implies that, you know, a lucky team is someone who gets results, I think, that um, they don't merit. And I think Ireland have deserved uh, to be champions. Um, and it, it's... It's to be expected that they will have to, you know, there will be there will be moments of luck throughout the campaign. But I don't think they're a lucky side, and I don't think they were lucky to win the game on Saturday because they scored three tries uh, in the game, uh, to, you know, to Francis too, I think. And they, um, I think, the way they were able to absorb the pressure and then score when they needed to, I think they were overall the better side. But you you could say they would have been unlucky to have lost the game. Sure enough, Eddie. What do you think, lucky? No, I, I agree with Dennis's assessment of it. I think that's very fair that, you know, we had moments of luck which did help us on our way in terms. And I agree, one of the big ones that we, we all forget is the injury profile. I mean, back in 2007 when we lost, to, everyone remembers us losing in Crow Park in the last minute to France, which cost us a grand slam. Brian O'Driscoll and Peter Stringer missed all that game. You know, Brian had a hamstring and he played the rest of the championship. So even like people forget the selection, the selection issues, but Dennis is right. You know, we're not a lucky team in that we, you know, we got the championship by luck. We didn't. We deserved it. We were, we were excellent throughout. Our level of performance was very consistent. We changed our game plans accordingly uh, as we met different teams, which is great. And uh, but we we did get a couple of bounces to the ball. But then again, you know, against England, we lost. We could have had at least a draw there because referee kind of you know didn't do us any favors the last mall of the game where where where. Uh, there was definitely an English player on the side, and he he didn't ping him. That would have given us at least a sh- we'd a chance to maybe go after England there and win the game. That would be a grand slam or, or kick the points and take the uh, the draw. So you know it, it, it it's kind of swings and rounds about us, you know, and you can almost think of times when it's a bounce of the ball went your way or didn't go your way. But they tend to balance out. But I, you know, Dennis is right. Why aren't they a lucky team in the sense that you know luck got us here? We we got here through hard work, having a great team. Uh, having a, a great coach and being very well organised. Eddie, how do you think that great coach Joe Schmidt played the Brian O'Driscoll card in the build-up to this game? Apparently, it was almost a taboo subject. Uh, Devin Toner said, well, now we can finally talk about Brian this week because we weren't really supposed to say anything. But apparently in the dressing room just before the game, Schmidt did say a couple of words and O'Driscoll alluded to there being some emotion there. Schmidt has downplayed that since and he said, I just... I just kind of, I just said that it'd be nice to give Brian one more big game or whatever and paraphrasing somewhat there. Do you think that... He, that Schmidt got that right and that O'Driscoll got that right, his involvement and the the use of his last game in terms of motivation? I did, yeah. You see, you know, Brian leaving uh, at the end of the game or retiring, leaving, retiring, whatever, uh, was the elephant in the room. But if that became the focal point, you know, that was the recipe for not not actually getting the job done, you know. And I think Brian was very smart that he, he deflected away from it all week, which you'd expect him to you know, talked about it's about going to Paris and winning the championship. And George Schmidt would do the same. They'd both be on the same page. That, that, that's a no-brainer. Uh, but I think, yeah, you know, as a final little injection into the narrative before it's on the field, to, you know, to recognise Brian, I think that was fair as well. But certainly he knew the media, which they did, did make this 
game about Brian, but in the in the changing rooms we couldn't let that happen. Um, and 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 they were smart enough that, you know, the end of the, at the end of the day it was about a performance. The fact that Brian was retiring at the end of the game, in reality, was 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 not a talking point or not even an issue because all that mattered on Saturday was we we won the championship. And and Devin Toner was right. Now we can talk about it that he's, he's left, but it would have been the wrong focal point in the build up for sure. And and you know Brian knew that and the way he talked, and George Smith knew it. And it's very easy for the players to get sucked into it because the media were asking about Brian all week. So they had to manage that carefully, and I think they managed it very well. Eddie, just on, just actually to that point, I think there's a, maybe a few similarities between the occasion uh, uh, and I suppose how you would have managed the build up to to the 2007 game against England in Croke Park where you know everything in the lead up to the game was about England and Croke Park and what's going to happen the anthem and, and, all, the anthem and all that sort of stuff and you know that's that's all anyone wanted to talk about outside the team in the lead up to the game and I remember you know in the lead up to that game we spoke very little about it and and, and Eddie I don't think you, you know I don't think you'd focused in any of our build up at any stage and very uh, obviously so I think there was a, a very brief mention probably by Eddie immediately before the game but not in the sense that we were relying on that for the build up for the match and much the same way I think that's the way the team would have handled the, um, the kind of whole Brian Odisco. you know it was certainly such the big story outside the game but the, the team doesn't have the luxury of uh, you know uh, of uh, neglecting all the other yeah. technical stuff preparation they have to do to, to win the game It was interesting know? when O'Driscoll made reference to it in the post-match interview because you generally you're told these days that teams, professional sports teams, don't want to get too emotional directly before a game. So when O'Driscoll mentioned that there was emotion, that there, there may have been tears in the dressing room, I thought, that doesn't sound like what exactly the mindset you're supposed to be going in with, but it doesn't sound like it, was, it doesn't sound like there were 23 men bawling, crying or anything like that. I don't that. think so, no. I don't <laughs> it think might have just been... Yeah, it. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I think it'd be pretty, uh, you know... It, You'd be you'd be foolish not to tap into some level yeah. of emotion in these sort of occasions, but you know if you're relying on on emotion carrying you through a game of that intensity and that uh, that skill level, that importance, you definitely come up second best. Eddie Joe, Joe Schmidt was always, and we talked to you about this not long after he got the job. Was always going to face challenges, and I, he he probably got a real eye opener in November, just how difficult it is and how different it is being an international manager. We were talking about how much the team learned in terms of closing out a game and maybe they didn't learn everything, but how much did Joe Schmidt, has Joe Schmidt learned, do you think, in a small space of time? Well, I, I suppose the, the thing that's um, kind of obvious is that he probably was ambitious in his statement that he was going to run you know, 20-odd players in the championship and get them on the field uh, starters. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's probably 18, I think, he started. Mm. And they were all forced injuries. So it's reasonable to assume had everybody been healthy all the time, he made, made really no changes. He tinkered with the bench, but that's not the same as, as putting 15 on the field and making changes. Um, so I think he's probably learned, uh, you know, in a short time, the Six Nations is the real deal. This is the NFL, you know, um, and you get into the middle of that tournament and it's it's a roller coaster ride and you're on the edge all the time because, you know, you lose one game and the championship is in jeopardy. You lose two games and you're heading towards the tank, you know, uh, and and that realisation comes through very quickly. And yeah, I think, you know, he, he would have seen that, I said, like, you know, when I think back, you know, I was very ambitious to think, you know, I'd be swapping players around uh, during games, you know, um, uh, between games because I was trying to build. And that was always, that's always a tough one for an Irish coach, is trying to build your team. It's really hard to do during the championship. It's, it's too important. Uh, it's too intense. There's too much on the table to, to, to go kind of moving the chess pieces just for the fun of it. And um, I think you would have learned that. 
Um, and I, I think, you know, he probably is adjusting as well to that literally seven or eight weeks of unbelievable intensity, which, uh, you know, when you're with a club, it's a week in, week out thing. And, and it is intense as well, and it does ratchet up for, you know, the Heineken games and stuff, and, and you get to the knockout stages of the Pro 12. But you have to keep a, an even keel because that's the way the job works. You, you can't play the most important game of your life every Friday night in the RDS. There has to be some semblance. But, but when you get into the international arena, they are the most important games of your life every week, albeit only, in this case, for seven or eight weeks. So that's, you know, mass, massively draining. Um, it's a huge amount of pressure compressed into a very short space of time. And I think, you know, he would have learned from that as well. You know, and he got a taste of it in the autumn, but it's only three or four weeks. This is double the time. It's, a, it's basically two months of, of carnage. Uh, the interesting thing about about Schmidt and his mindset about this is that maybe the way we're looking at it is that you know oh we've we've earned the bit of luck that we were just talking about there over the course of the last ten years and this is a you know a, the at the end of of, a, of an era we've managed to get a championship over the line but whereas with Schmidt it's you know he's only starting you know he's only scratched the surface of the changes that he wants to make to sort of to the Irish team. Yeah. yeah, he's just in the door, but but like, and we've seen his stamp on the team. But to get where he's got in the first year is an extraordinary achievement. And Declan Kidney won a Grand Slam his first year as well. You know, he got hit the ground running as well. He did, yeah. And that was, we were sitting here five years ago as Grand Slam champions, and we never hit those heights again under Declan Kidney. Is there any reason to believe it's going to be different this year, Dennis? Based on what you've seen over the last while, is that an impossible question to answer? Well, I think it is pretty tough because I think if you'd been asked, as I said, if you'd been asking this question five years ago, yeah, we're going to win it again next of course year. You are. So, you know, I, I think, um, I think uh, it's, it's too early to say that. I'd be confident that that Ireland will continue to improve under under Joe Schmidt. I think. Um, the squad will be the squad has to go under you know still has to go through probably a few more changes in advance of the World Cup but even though there's some disgruntled players around the fringes uh, you know I think overall Joe Schmidt will be seeing that much more as you know here's the, here's the overall he'd be pretty clear on what that squad is going to be of you know the, the, the 25 kind of 30 players that he he's going to be choosing from um, and I think uh, even for guys who didn't play I think everyone has probably learned a lot the way the direction that Ireland are going to play in the next three or four years yeah. and uh, um, you know it, it's just important that uh, Ireland are able to improve on this year's performance next year and I think that was perhaps um, where 2009 uh, didn't fulfil its promise I don't think the Irish team were better the following year um, Well it's interesting though because even the, in terms of the, the talent level there there was an assumption as far back to that 2007, 2008, that this mm. was... I'm not even going to use... I'm going to try not to use the term golden generation, Dennis, but there was a very good generation of players there and there was an assumption that what are we going to do when all these guys retire? Now, O'Gara's gone and Sexton has stepped in, O'Driscoll's gone and nobody's going to play to the same level as him but we'll hopefully have guys to step in there. O'Connell will still, soon be gone. Does it look like actually Irish rugby is in a much healthier place in 2014 than we might have thought it would, it would be a few years back? Yeah, I think there's always a, um, you know, the end is nigh and, you know, these guys never be replaced. New players are emerging all the time. Um, and, you know, it's it's the, the the system that produces players now is stronger than it was 10 years ago because um, we're 10 years down the line with professionals and the academies are stronger. Uh, the level of coaching is stronger. The overall level of skills of players is probably higher um, throughout, you know, 1 to 30 of the squads. So it, it does follow that... Um, that Ireland will pro- keep producing very good players. Now, 
you know, that's not to say once in a generation players will be replaced immediately as soon as one steps down. Um, and if we're, if you're lucky enough to have a position where, let's say, Ronald O'Gara steps down and Johnny Sexton steps in, that doesn't necessarily mean that will be the same for every of those type of players. Um, but overall, in balance, I think there's enough good players coming through, and there is enough good competition for players. So, you know, did we think of being in this position, and or you know, uh, to, to produce enough players? You know, I think that the 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 answer is in the the quality of the players that are now there. Um, there are a few more changes, as I say, I think probably to to shake out. And in that respect, Ireland are maybe a little bit behind England. I think where they are on the curve, I think England have probably settled pretty much on what that squad is going to be mm. in advance of the World Cup. I think Ireland will have to make a few more. There's a few more tweaks to actually go through with a few more retirees and you know some new combinations to to put in and you know England are maybe just a season ahead of Ireland in that respect and that could be telling come the World Cup but that's that's. In in lots of ways, I don't think that but that's Ireland, in the centre, really, is it? Well, it, it, well I think it's, there's a, well, yeah, I think there's you know the, that you know that'll be one area. Um, you know, the, the the back three combination is the, the the pressure for places there means that the final combination, who's going to play in that position, is probably not decided at this point. But the, the, the but the strength is very good. Uh, obviously, the back row combination with Ferris is going to come back in. Sean O'Brien's going to be around. The guys, the incumbents there are very very strong. And then you know. Again, second row, front row, etc. So, there's, there's, there, there is just a little bit more, I think, tweaking to be done, and I think England maybe just a little bit ahead of Ireland, that even though Ireland are champions, but you know that won't, you know, in six months' time or three months' time when the summer comes around, I just think England may be a little bit further ahead, but but not much. Eddie, were you surprised by the quality of performances of uh, they get thrown in together because they're they're both in the wing, but Dave Carney in particular and Andrew Trimble, that these guys look like real international. A class well Trimble certainly and Dave Carney did particularly well. Devon Toner came in and suddenly looked like an international player. We're talking about the quality of players there, but it, does it seem to you that the coach got quite a lot out of these guys? For sure, yeah, there's no question. And I thought, you not know, to be fair to Andrew Trimble, like I sat in in the, in, in the press box in the stadium last November, and he was sitting two seats away from me with BBC. So he goes from sitting in the press box to actually playing like two months later, and by golly, has he taken his chance? I think that's a reflection. Like he knows that there's guys breathing down his neck at a horrendous rate. Like there's a shed load of wingers out there trying to get in. Um, Simon Zebo wasn't even seen around the Six Nations, you know. So it's there's there's pressure in, in 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 those positions. So guys have to pitch up, which is great. And that was always why we felt the All Blacks got the best out of their players because there's a guy breathing down your neck, and you had one bad game in your history. So there's that competition, but it doesn't. As Dennis pointed out, it doesn't exist across the squad yet. And I know. Um, Joe Smith has talked about building that depth for the World Cup so he has this flexibility to move the team around that's going to be a challenge in certain areas like for example we need to find two outside centres really because Brian is gone we need to find an outside centre who can play a 13 and someone to back him up we need to find backup for Dars you know Dars has got a huge amount of miles in the clock and they're hard miles he's no intention of return and he's playing out of his skin but you've got to think at some point he may pick up an injury and you're going to have to go into a big game without him there needs to be somebody settled at full back to cover Rob Kearney. You know, Rob is again, no question, the best full back we have, but who's the next man up if that happened to him? Whereas the wings, we've we've got a queue. And it's the notion that, oh, such a guy, he had a couple of games in the Pro 12 at, at, at wing and you know, at full back, he can slot him in there. Um, you know, that doesn't fly if you had to play a guy for two or three tests in the Six Nations or World Cup. And then if you go to the front row, I mean, uh, we, we've unearthed two really good props in Sean Cronin and Martin Moore, but 
you know, Mike Ross is doing great, but like, the, will he will he make the World Cup? They maybe look at the possibility of more cover at tighthead. Um, I certainly, I think the back five and the halfbacks and the, and the tens were, were were just like overflowing with talent there. But there's a couple of spots yet that have to be, um, you know, kind of nailed down, and there isn't a lot of time. So that's why I think the Argentina tour is crucial. That he's going to get a chance to really put guys on. You know, it'll be a tough tour out there. The Argentines be ready for for the rugby championship, so they really fancy taking Ireland as a scalp. And you know, again, he's going to try and win those games, but he's got to try and build some depth into that. And he certainly, we all know, he's got to find the thirteen. And whoever gets that short, the pressure is going to be immense, unfairly so, but it will be immense because we're replacing the greatest rugby player of all time. And uh, so all that's still there to be ironed out. Um, on the run, as I say, with, with trying to win matches at the same time. Dennis, just uh, a final word on the backroom staff there as well. It's a small, close-knit coaching team, which uh, Les Kiss in particular seems to have, uh, I guess once you can concentrate more on one area of the game, he was looking after quite a lot of the team at the end under Deccan Kidney. He's gone back. The defence has been incredible. The forwards have been good. Uh, these guys are getting brief mentions here and there, Plumtree and Les Kiss. Under um, under Joe Schmidt, but it seems like they've done a pretty remarkable job. Three of them. Yeah, like I don't know any of them really, you know. And I, I uh, I've met Les, Les Kiss maybe once or twice, and I know very little about the their qualities as coaches. Coaches, say for anecdotal um, uh, conversation, anecdotal examples, mm. and and the results. Um, but I do think um, the selection probably by Joe Schmidt, the securing of Joe Schmidt by John Plumtree. Um, it has been an excellent uh, choice, an excellent coup for Ireland. And um, I was speaking to uh, Michael Checker recently, and he, you know, we were just talking to talking about various things. He's obviously down here so well as Waratahs at the moment. And uh, just in the com- course of the conversation, he had said, you know, there's a, you know, that's, you know, that's a pinpointed Plumtree's appointment and said, you know, that's a really, really good appointment for Ireland. You know, he's a really top quality guy. Really, right and very high. Yeah. yeah. Um, just for, on a number of different levels, his experience, uh, you know, the counterbalance of what Joe Schmidt brings in, his personality, he just kind of said, you know, that's a, you know, that, that, that's a, a, a very, very good um, guy to have picked up and to build your forward uh, play. And the forward play this year was, was excellent. Ireland's uh, rolling, you know, driving mall was, was back to its, you know, Mid two thousands best really, you know, um, uh, when you know, see the 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 monster, uh, you know, the monster mall was employed kind of a, at a at a national level, and and you know it was excellent this year, and just their overall play, their defensive play, and um, the defensive mall actually in particular, for all I know of it, um, this weekend was particularly vital because there was a few times in the game where France went for the corners at at times, not just you know towards the end when they could have scored, but also at times when they had momentum. And if they'd scored again, Ireland were under a lot of pressure. Uh, and the the defensive mall from Ireland against a French pack, a very big French pack. And now you know you're talking about French forwards who who playing at home would fancy themselves in that in that position. You know, I think that was a real hallmark of of the work that's been done behind the scenes. And uh, and uh, you know, I think John Plumtree has a, has a lot to. Um, be, uh, deserves a lot of credit for this performance this year. Alright, well we enjoy the Six Nations for the time being. We'll look forward to the World Cup and everything else maybe for another day. But Dennis Hickey, great stuff. Eddie O'Sullivan, thank you. Thanks, Owen. Dude, are you like sick of getting ragdolled and want to get shacked instead? Are you a surfer who would like to improve your surfing skills? Then get with the pros, bro. Vacay. Surfholidays.com Then sign up for the Intermediate Bootcamp Week in Portugal with surfholidays.com Bitching waves, seven days of like totally awesome. Professional instructors, advanced breaks, video analysis. It's gnarly, dude. It's quite good, actually. 
Surpolonaise.com. Intermediate Bootcamp Week, Aracera, Portugal, May 10th to 17th. Book now. And for more surf specials, see surfholidays.com. Pretty good explanation there of the role that Luck had to play in Ireland's victory, Murph, because we were talking about this over the weekend and I wasn't trying to claim to you that Ireland were a lucky team, mm. but I, w- I was making the point and I was trying to put the tennis there that if there were lucky breaks to be had this year, we got them chiefly in England losing that match to France. Because yeah. it was always going to be difficult to win a Grand Slam when you're playing away against England and against France. So the best you're usually going to get is four wins out of five. It's fantastic. Them, yeah. So you just need that other team then to go and get beaten. And England got beaten. It just it happened so early that that was, that was really our key break, uh, uh, quite clearly. Looking yeah. at now. But Dennis explained it well. We're not a lucky team. We're lucky once or twice like every winning team is. Exactly, yeah. And I think... Um I think you know England had their chances to beat France, and that they they would certainly be kicking themselves about that game. But you know that's that's sport. You know that's the championship. I think that you're in. You know if you four really really good teams, then it's going to come down to a couple of moments in those in that mini league within the Six Nations, effectively, and uh, asking people to win all five of their games in the way the championship is currently constituted. The strength of four of those teams right now a Grand Slam is an unbelievable achievement winning the tournament is an unbelievable achievement One of the key aspects that we focused on before we even started when we were previewing the Six Nations was how we're going to deal with the defeat that we will inevitably suffer mm. and it could have been against Wales thankfully it wasn't that whole big home win set us up for everything that followed but it did happen against England and we refocused we understood how important the championship is and managed to win on points difference, which is pretty amazing. Irish rugby, certainly back in the day, we wouldn't have been racking up massive scores mm. against good teams. So it was a pretty was the fact amazing that they way to do it. Conceded so few points. And that too, yeah. I mean, the defence was pretty. We scored more tries and conceded the least points. So that sounds like we deserved the Six Nations yeah, this that's year. A pretty good Coming argument. Up later today, a very special second captain's football. That's. Yeah. <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them up with. What you're doing down here, you show me, man. Okay. A couple of huge stories in the world of football, Owen, from over the weekend. Rivaldo retired. Big story. Yeah, we're going to talk a bit about, about that because mm. he, he was a great player. I mean, one of the greats. Back in the last century, yep. Truly one of the great players. In my opinion. Arsenal, uh, victors at White Hart Lane, mm-hmm. 1-0. Tim Sherwood throwing his body warmer around yeah. to little avail. Um, Stephen Ireland, lovely through ball. Uh, or lovely lovely pass to set a bottom wingy okay. uh, for that uh, screamer against Sure, sure. You may be missing Ham. something, I think. Uh, Tony Pulis. Uh, Leeds Crystal Palace, um, I suppose, to 17th with a, there, a nil-nil you owe an away to, to Sunderland. Um, uh, Villa against manager. Chelsea. What a drama that was mm. at, at Villa that Park. That is true, in fairness. That is, that you know, Fabian, Fabian Delph and his rubber legs. Uh, Jose Mourinho sent off. and giving one of the craziest uh, post-match interviews I've ever, I've ever seen. I'm wondering, is this, is this uh, more you know, strategic uh, brilliance from Jose Mourinho or simply florid madness uh, you know bursting out on our on our screens Southampton still really impressive mm. what about down the league season what you think at this stage they would have run their little legs to stumps but now 4-2 against Norwich Newcastle without Alan Pardew going down 1-0 to struggling Fulham I'll feel this one Murph okay. Ken Early is going to Seamus both apologise to and endorse 
Brendan Rogers. Brendan Rogers. Candidacy as is Liverpool manager. manager. Indeed, yeah. yes. It's finally going to happen. I, I like the way Ken isn't even mentioning it. He doesn't want to blow this yeah. on the first show. It's all, it's all about the football. See, the second we've, football. We've, we've touched on Pardew there. We've touched on Villa. So that we've got a clear slate of one hour's worth <laughs> of Brendan Rogers. What a great guy. Coming up very, very shortly. Time now for US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian Murphy, how are you this week? Things are good here, Owen. We got um, the, the good old feeling of a March in California sunshine. And March Madness about to start this weekend. You know our obsession with that college bracket and all that. Spring training and it's all good, all good. And I'm delighted that uh, I, there's still time for the U.S. sports segment. Now that you guys are blowing up on the TV, which is awesome. And uh, congrats on the RTE2 gig. I wish, I, I wish you guys could uh, stream that over here. Stateside, we'll Come get on, it over get to you. Yeah, no, right? yeah, I'm sure you can. You can get a look at it in the uh, international RTE player there, Brian. But thanks for the kind words. Listen, we're never going to forget about this slot, Brian. It's our favorite chat of the week. We want to talk this week about one specific sportsman by the name of Steve Nash. Mm. Background information, first of all, for the uninitiated, who is Steve Nash? Well, it's funny we do U.S. sports, right? Here's the the little sneaky little trivia about Steve Nash. He's Canadian. He's Canadian, right? But one of the greatest basketball players of the last twenty years, one of the greatest point guards of all time, and an unlikely guy too, because in in a uh, in a sport defined by athleticism of the great LeBron Jameses and Kobe Bryant's and guys who can run and jump, do things that we can't do. Steve Nash is a relatively normal athlete. He's only six foot three, 195 pounds. He, he doesn't have any particular, you know, strength or size. He is blessed with amazing quickness, and as it turns out, is one of these basketball savants who just through sheer hard work and vision and knowledge of the game became one of the great point guards of all time. Sort of like if for those who followed U.S. basketball. Well, most who do know Steve Nash by now, but those who don't would compare him to John Stockton, the old Utah Jazz point guard who made a lot of beautiful music with Carl Malone through the years. Steve Nash came out of a little tiny college here in the Bay Area called Santa Clara University, which through the years has had occasional small little blips on the basketball scene, but is by no measure a basketball powerhouse. So he's an unlikely story in a number of ways. Comes from Vancouver, Canada, went to a small school in Santa Clara, doesn't really have the size or strength to kind of dominate in the NBA, and yet here he is now. Uh, He started his career in 1996, we're in 2014, and the guy has carved himself a career in which he won two MVPs, Owen, two MVPs for Steve Nash. This is a, that's the lair of Kobe and LeBron and Bird and Magic to win an MVP. And he did it twice. And, of course, he's just a, a passing savant. He's quick as lightning. He's a brilliant uh, teammate and distributor who, after spending many, many years with the Dallas Mavericks and Phoenix Suns, has never won an NBA title and came to the Los Angeles Lakers in 2012 in a celebrated uh, forming of Kobe Bryant, Dwight Howard, and Steve Nash to try to form the last chapter of Kobe's title-winning career, and it's gone awful. 
Uh, Steve Nash's body has betrayed him. Dwight Howard never felt comfortable in L.A. He has left and gone to Houston, and we all know Kobe's out now with the Achilles. So that's who Steve Nash is. He's a lion in winter is who he is. And he's Owen. still going. Yeah, as you say, he's been beset by injury. But there's an amazing quote, Brian, from a relative recently, like a week or two ago, where he is asked about retiring. He said, I'm not going to retire because I, I want the money. That's honest. We want honest athletes. At the same time, you're going to have people out there saying he's so greedy. He's made X amount and he has taken this last little bit. Yes, I do have to take that last little bit. I'm sorry if that's frustrating to some people, but if they were in my shoes, they would do exactly the same thing. Unbelievable to hear sportsmen speak honestly about what almost all sportsmen feel. I got to tell you, we, we talked a lot about it on our show here on KMBR in San Francisco, the Murphy Max show, as all your listeners know so devotedly. And none of us had a negative reaction to the quote. All of us felt sort of like we'd taken a clean shower. Like, it was refreshing. You know, it was, it was um, all these people I signed here because there was a famous free agent, Mike Hampton. He was a baseball pitcher. And he went on the free agent market, and he signed with the Colorado Rockies, who were awful, for seven years and $126 million. It was a staggering sum of money for a guy who was a good pitcher, but not a dominant pitcher. And he gave all these – he kind of the signature uh, excuse, uh, press conference of excuses. Well, uh, we like the lifestyle here. And I remember he said, there's really good public schools here for my kids. It's like, wait a minute, what? First of all, any athlete with dough is going to live in a neighborhood with nice public schools. They don't have to worry about that. But it was one of those – sort of symbols of excuses of, I want to say everything but money. Well, of course he signed with the money. The Rockies were awful. It's not a pitcher's park. And the public schools are, are good in a lot of places. So uh, Mike Hampton, this is the opposite. This is Steve Nash saying, I have $9.7 million coming to me if I stay at it. And this is a guy who's bought – he only played 10 games this year, guys, 10 games, and he's been shut down. And this is the time to go, right? This is the time when his body is telling him to go. He'll be, he is 40 years old. He just turned 40 last month, which is ancient by NBA standards. His, his position requires you know, a, a lot of banging and, and flexibility. He's a point guard. He has to be up and down the court, and he has to drive the lane, and he has to take some abuse. It's just nothing makes sense at this age to still be doing it when his leg and his back, his back is killing him. And gosh, we know how many different athletes do different sports when they start having back problems. Hello, Tiger Woods, right? Mm. It's a problem. So for him to say, and this is, by the way, your, your listeners can see this on um, a website that we seem to be increasingly talking about more on this show because they do such a good job, grantland.com. Yeah, we played a little clip from this. They're doing, uh, running a documentary series chronicling this time in Nash's career. Correct, yeah. yeah. So you can watch the kind of the longer view. He's agreed to – he's one of these guys. He's always been media savvy and media friendly in that he understands that it's part of the game and part of his reach out. He's always very charitably or, uh, uh, you know, not many people have negative words to say about Steve Nash. And that's partially why I think most of America so far this week – is not reacting with negative uh, thoughts. You know, he kind of preemptively says in that quote, you know, I know people are going to say I'm greedy, but you guys would do the same thing. And, but it's funny, is not many people are saying that. Steve Nash has built up enough credibility of an effort guy. I think, I think most of us would be offended if we saw a guy stealing money and just sitting on the bench and not trying. But Steve Nash has earned the reputation through his career as a total effort guy, a guy who's always going to give his all, a guy who's never been accused of being a loafer, and a guy who's always been a team guy. So I think he's kind of earned enough sort of credibility amongst fans that people say, yeah, wow, Steve, you hear Steve Nash said the only reason he's trying to come back next year is to get $9.7 million. And while others had criticized him for sort of 
besmirching the Laker jersey by being part of this Laker implosion. You know, the, the bigger backstory is that the Lakers are awful for the first time in 20 years. They're just completely irrelevant, and the Clippers have become L.A.'s basketball team, which is, if, you, if you've lived long enough, that's just a mind-blowing thought. It's like Manchester City winning the, uh, you know, the Premier League last year. Yeah. But uh, so he has kind of, you know, brought us a little honesty, and most people are saying, huh, thanks for that. It's an interesting reaction, Brian. He, uh, I don't know how similar this comparison, how correct this comparison is, but we have talked in the past about quarterbacks, say, in the NFL with really good teams taking a salary which probably isn't commensurate with what they could get. They could look for more money, but that would mean that with salary cap issues, they would probably have to surround themselves with weaker players. Is there? I'm interested that the reaction has been positive, or certainly not too negative, to this uh, this money grab by Steve Nash. Because am I right in thinking that with Nash taking this sort of cash that he that he's taking at the moment, it maybe is preventing the Lakers from getting some, just getting them out of there and getting some better players in. Yeah, you bring up an excellent point, and that's why there are some people of Lakers fans who think that he's uh, kind of not, you know, that the Lakers fans who view this as maybe what you're talking about. But the other flip side of that coin is the Lakers gave him that contract, and mm. they gave him that three-year deal for $27 million, and, and, you know, the, 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 we sort of go by, you know, you're worth what the marketplace determines you. And, and the Bus family uh, chose to say, yeah, this is what you're worth. You're worth $9 million uh, next year. But yeah, um, sure, it does gobble up money for next year's salary cap as the Lakers try to you know, get better. You know, the bright side on it, it's only one year left on the contract. Now, what really hampers teams are long-term deals where you're sort of salaried, uh, you're sort of with this yoke of a salary for seven years, you know, uh, to make the comparison in baseball, the Giants had uh, Barry Zito sign him to a seven-year deal worth $120 million, and most people are just like, oh, my God, for seven years we're stuck with this thing. And, and that happens in football, too, although these football contracts, that's another story that's developed this week, is all these free agents contracts that are signing everywhere, most of them went upon harsh light of day are viewed to be they have very little money guaranteed. And so, you know, it's actually, you know, it's about how you string out your money over a long stretch of time. And Nash would only be gobbling up next year's salary cap only. So it wouldn't be a, a prohibitive drain on the Lakers' attempt to get better in the long term. It would be interesting to see when he comes back, if he does come back next year, how he would play at 40, 41 years old. I mean, he's been shut down, like I said, after just playing 10 games this year. Kobe Bryant wants to come back. Nash wants to come back, and the other backstory to all this is that the, the big story here in the States is that Phil Jackson has become this incredible object of tug-of-war right now between the Knicks and the Lakers because the Knicks, who are awful, the New York Knicks are awful, 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 and they've been trying for uh, relevance, have apparently, but not officially, convinced Phil Jackson to become their head of basketball operations. But the Lakers and Kobe Bryant and Magic Johnson are not trying not to let him go. They're sort of waging a public war to get him back. So what would Phil Jackson do with, you know, if he stayed with the Lakers? What would he do with the Nash uh, contract and all that next year as the Lakers try to rebuild this brand, which, as I said, the other part of the whole story is that this, the Laker brand. Nash is always going to be kind of a symbol of the downfall of the Lakers, fair or unfair, but he and Dwight Howard and Kobe was it an experiment that just blew up in the Lakers' faces. Brian, Wayne Rooney recently signed a new contract for Manchester United worth, I think it was a report of 300 grand a week or some sort of crazy money anyway. But I, th- I think similar to what you're talking about, I think most supporters 
were they were fine with it. It's it's what if that's what the club are willing to pay, then that's what the club are willing to pay. And people didn't wish him any ill that I noticed anyway. But I would imagine if Wayne Rooney came out and did an interview and said what Steve Nash said that oh, yeah, I should be getting three hundred grand a week. All of you will be looking for the same kind of money, almost in a, a passive aggressive style comment. Actually talking about it, I think, maybe in the UK and possibly Ireland as well, would be a slightly different thing. Are American sports fans maybe a little bit more business savvy than supporters in this part of the world, do you think? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. It, it, it is almost a case-by-case basis uh, because I'm thinking, like, if Alex Rodriguez came out and said it, it would be viewed differently yeah. than if Steve Nash said it. So it's a personality thing rather than yeah, you drawing yeah, too yeah, many yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. almost like we, we'll accept greed from guys who we think are good guys. <laughs> right. You know, it's like uh, in the great Pulp Fiction, remember uh, the great conversation between Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta, but, but a pig's got personality and personality goes a long way. Remember <laughs> when they're talking about eating pork? And it's that way. You know who came back in the news this week, too, in the States was Barry Bonds. He joined the Giants as a hitting instructor for a week in spring training, and it re- reopened all those wounds, and we reanalyzed our thoughts on Bonds, and everybody talked about what a jerk he was for so long and how little capital he built up with people by being such a jerk. And A-Rod would be in the same boat, but I kind of go circle back to what I said at the start, which is that Steve Nash has been such a, a max effort guy and such a non-troublemaker his whole career that people almost view his words as sort of more weighty and intelligent than other people's words because of just the guy who he is. And, you know, you start thinking about the argument's been brought up that, that, you know, it, it shines a light on athletes. As crazy as the money is, they only have this small window to, to earn their money. Uh, and, you know, there's going to come a time when Steve Nash is not offered $9 million. Whereas you and I, Owen, as we continue our meteoric media careers, <laughs> uh, we'll continue to earn top dollar of course. Uh, well into the market years. Whereas <laughs> Steve Nash, this is it. I mean, he's, you know, after with this, when this contract's done, maybe you can go become a broadcaster and steal some money, but there's only about a finite number of those jobs around. You know, this is his chance. And I think that's another thing we've talked about this week is it shines a light on as jealous as we are of these guys and as much incredible money they make that you just can't even dream what you would do with that money, they have from A to Z to earn it. And then when Z comes, it's over. Sure. And, and so Nash, Nash has gotten a little bit of that benefit, that doubt too. Although he's certainly, uh, yeah, $10 million a year. I think for a 20-year career, if you're starting to earn the likes of uh, numbers like $10 million towards the end of it, you should be, you should be able he's, to retire safely on that. There's actually a, a number. You can look it up. He's earned $137 million over his career. So I don't know what you could do with that on... Uh, taxes in California, though. Taxman is killing him. Yeah, Brian, just lastly, <laughs> on the, you mentioned the Lakers a couple of times and how this reflects on them and the Dwight Howard signing which didn't work out, the Kobe Bryant injury, and this Steve Nash. The more we talk about it, the more I, I fail to understand why they would sign somebody so old and with his body so banged up. Are, what has actually happened to lead them to this point? Do they, they have different ownership structures to what they had in the earlier Kobe days when they were winning championships? Yeah, yeah. Phil Jackson's the, the magic name. Phil Jackson was the coach when Kobe and Shaq were winning championships, and he built that structure. And then Kobe was still in his prime. And, and then he, the trade they engineered for Pau Gasol before Pau, Pau, has, Pau has sort of turned the corner on his career. He's not nearly the player he was when they won those championships. 
And they are a team in disarray because of the age of their stars, and they never were able to find the next Kobe. They tried to with Dwight Howard. I mean, he's a young star, and it just did not work. Dwight was not comfortable there. He and Kobe didn't get along. He didn't like L.A. He wasn't playing well. The team wasn't winning. There was a lot of negative feelings about him. Then there was all that public scrutiny. I think it was Magic Johnson or Shaquille O'Neal or both who criticized Dwight Howard for being unable to handle the glare of Los Angeles, which is something. You know, that Laker uniform, you put that on, you're putting on the same uniform that Magic Johnson wore, that Kobe Bryant wore, that Wilt Chamberlain wore at the end of his career, that Jerry West wore. You know, some of these legends who played for the Lakers you know, you're, you're, you got, you got to perform, and they didn't. And so now they're struggling. So they've lost. On top of that, their they're very charismatic and powerful owner, Dr. Jerry Buss, passed away. And, you know, these owners who are so iconically linked to their teams, like right here in the Bay Area, the Oakland Raiders and Al Davis, who was such a maverick and such a legend and won three Super Bowls in his prime and basically, you know, challenged the NFL on any number of occasions. He grew old. He lost his skills, his team fell into disarray, and then he sadly passed away a couple years ago. And the Raiders are a team that's just been flailing for 10 years, flailing up to this day, too. Uh, so that's an example of like own, iconic owners who pass away, legendary coaches go, and you don't replace them. So I don't, the Lakers keep thinking that they can, they can get into this draft this year and draft one. There's about four or five stars in college right now that are coming out that they can get one of these guys, certainly that the league will fix it so they get one of these guys because uh, they like the Lakers to be good. But I don't know if any of these guys is the next Kobe. So they are hurting. And like I said, it's the Clippers town now. Blake Griffin and Chris Paul are the new, are the new sheriffs in town, and really Blake Griffin, 24 years old. This guy's coming in to his own. In fact, our very own Golden State Warriors here in the Bay Area are having a fierce rivalry with them this year and probably going to play them in the playoffs. So things change, you know. I alluded to Manchester City earlier and, you know, didn't Liverpool used to be atop the table mm-hmm. all those years? Well, they're and... on the way back at the moment, Brian, but yeah. Oh, there you go. Maybe that'll be the Lakers. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, great to talk to you as always. Thank you. All right, Owen, all the best. I don't know if you agree with me, Ken, about my interpretation of what would happen if Wayne Rooney spoke in the way that Steve Nash spoke about money. Uh-huh. If he had come out and said, listen, everybody, you'd all take this money if you were offered it. Yeah. This is a business. Get over it. Yeah. Suddenly the attitude towards Rooney, which seems to be for the most part. John Delaney says that Premier League players get paid too much money. It's sold its soul somewhat. I think most fans probably look at it. It's such a different world. that It's almost impossible to connect with. So mm-hmm. just let them have their money. But if he was to come out and almost gloat over it. I think that might change things somewhat. Yeah, I don't think there's any danger of, of Wayne really doing that, you know. Um, Head screwed on? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw the other day he, he was saying, this is a nightmare. You know, I can't believe This is my worst day in football. After the... <laughs> I don't think it was any, anywhere close to being one of his worst days in football. But, you probably, know... It probably was. You're getting paid the Everton, money. You've got you to say... Uh, Everton player, Man United player, at home, embarrassed by Liverpool. Mm, I wouldn't say it was a great day for him. Probably any of the things that have happened to him in international tournaments were, were worse, I'd say. Or might mean as much to him. Yeah. Well, the Champions League final probably does. The England tournaments might not mean as much to him. It may be. As losing at home to Liverpool, yeah. embarrassingly. Well, see, the thing is, it's a, it's a different atmosphere. Um, Nash is getting, effectively, they're trying to bully him out of his career because the money that they're paying to him is salary cap money that they could justifiably be paying to someone else who can actually play who's he's not injured well, and who know, can actually he play should, he should stand up against that you know because and that's i think in fairness, that's exactly what he's in fairness to steve nash he also is playing a very a position where he's been unbelievably durable for about 18 years albeit for different teams mm. this is the problem the lakers fans have seen the old 
banged up Steve Nash, who's he. I don't know if you've seen any of this documentary, but a lot of the time he spent lying on because it's a back issue. Treatment table. He's not just a treatment table, but during games, mm. the rest of the players will be off. You know, trying to. Uh, score some points and he'll be laid flat on the ground being dealt with by the physio while the game is going on it's kind of a yeah. mm. well, if you, if you poignant side give a massive contract to a guy who's nearly 40 yeah, years it's old it's a Lakers fault it's not yeah. Steve Nash's unless you think yeah. that, that this guy is somehow immune from exactly the same laws of biology that govern every other organism on the planet something we haven't mentioned so far is that it's been a great weekend for Ulsterman Andrew Trimble we yeah. talked a bit about him a lot of people's man of the match certainly uh, Shane Horgan's man of the match Stephen Ferris his insane hit on his return, his first... He's quite frankly... You saw this, Ken, on his return yeah. for Ulster on Friday night. He, chasing up and under, smashed... Not so much smashed a guy, but grabbed him and ran him back 20 yards. Mm, it was impressive. Didn't he do something quite similar against Australia in the World Cup? Yeah, multiple times. That, uh, on that occasion, I think he, he maybe physically almost picked the guy up, whereas on yeah. this occasion, he was pushing the guy back and, and holding him up just enough so that the guy's little windmilling legs could take some of the load <laughs> of, of, of moving him. But it was clear yeah. that he was trying. He was actually trying to go he down and first to holding him up. Yeah. It's like it's a technique of tackling in rugby called the wraparound tackle, whereas Ferris has managed to perfect it to such a degree that you actually can't see what he's tackling. That it, a bit, you, his shoulders are so gigantic that you, the view of the player he's tackling is completely obscured. Just his little um, legs. Quite frankly, it shouldn't be legal what he did And in the Allianz League, Ulster teams on fire. Yeah, well, two of the top three in Division 1 are Tyrone and Derry, and they've both only lost one game. And then Division 4, the top... Or Division 2, rather, the top four is Donegal down Armagh... Or Donegal down Monaghan and Armagh. And Armagh at the moment, not a particularly good team. But the other five, Tyrone, Derry, Donegal down Monaghan... Along with Cork, you probably say they're the form teams in the National Football League at the moment, and it just and Cavan have won all five of their games in Division Three. What it boils down to is that after you know a couple of years of maybe the Ulster Championship not being the as quite as competitive as as you would like to think, or as you may remember from the last fifteen or twenty years or so, it's an unbelievably competitive uh, championship now. And when you look at it, Tyrone have to beat, I think, Donegal and da- or Monaghan and Down just to get to the Ulster semi-final, mm. which is an unbelievable ask, uh, even for a team like Tyrone, who seem to be motoring unbelievably well at the moment. Um, I think there are probably lots of people's outside bets for the, the All-Ireland, just the way that they've been able to hold on to some of their older players and throw in some of these really, really talented uh, young guys. It's... It, that to me is the, is the big thing that's come out of the first probably five weeks of the league uh, and we will focus a little bit more on it in the weeks to come as we get closer to the championship also but for now that's pretty much it very much looking forward to a special edition of <laughs> second the Brendan Captain's. Rogers edition <laughs> the Brendan Rogers edition of second captain's football at the Irish Times Ken should sing it out on. with something as well I, I don't know what uh, we should pick a song but Ken should definitely sing and dedicate a tune to Brendan Rodgers thanks today. Kieran thank you Owen thank you Ken thanks Ken thanks uh, Kieran thanks Owen thanks guys happy St. Patrick's Day we'll talk to you later what is that that's the second time it's gone off they never go home they never go home they never go home those, those, those boys 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.